Today is like part B of the thing we started on last time, which was lie number two. Your guess is as good as mine. I guess if I were to summarize that whole concept, it's the idea of uh, truth as a sort of relative or completely subjective matter. In other words, what's true for me and what's true for you might be entirely different things, and there's no necessary connection to reality in that. And so last time we talked about how how that happens, and that's kind of what's at the top of your handout today. Perception is incomplete. So my perspective, I don't know everything. And so I have a, a one place of seeing and hearing, learning, observing things. You have a different place. So perception varies from person to person, and there's no reason to prefer my perception over yours or vice versa. And so all that is kind of so far so good. But then when you get to the next step, the next step is more like the conclusion. Therefore, all we have is our perception. And so perception is reality. And really what that means is we're disconnected from reality. So objective re reality is practically non-existent. So truth is entirely a subjective matter. And then if we're talking about what's true, all we're arguing about is who's in charge. The determination of the truth becomes a instrument of oppression. And so it's all, everything ends up in the realm of politics. But today what we want to do is talk about what the scripture says about how we perceive the truth and how we come to understand what is true. And I guess the first thing you might say about that is the scripture very clearly asserts that certain things are true and certain things are not true. That truth is uh, something we can have access to. Now, I don't think the scripture says that anyone other than God has any kind of perfect perception of the truth. So truth is a personal matter, meaning knowing is something persons do. It's not a matter of what you might call pure observation, because what you observe depends on who's observing it. So it's personal, but it's not entirely subjective. So what we need is some way of connecting my personal perception with the objective reality, the thing we're perceiving. And we don't want to let go entirely of the idea that we are actually perceiving something real and that we can actually perceive it and that we can actually perceive it truly, even if we are going to say that there's a subjective element in anyone's understanding of anything. So where we are, you know, I think, from a biblical point of view, is somewhere in the middle. And in fact, in philosophy school, this has a name. It's called critical realism. In other words, there's a reality 
we can know it, we can understand it, but we also don't want to trust our own understanding of it too much. We want to be critical about our understanding, or I want to be critical about yours, and you want to be critical about mine, and we want to have an argument, and we want to figure out what we can figure out in the midst of that argument. Okay, discussion. I don't mind if it's an argument, though I do think the hotter an argument gets, the less useful it becomes. Because what ends up mattering then in a hot argument is who's going to win, not what's true. So anyway, I think the, the second thing I want to say is the biblical idea of truth is grounded in the very nature of God. God himself personifies the truth and determines what is and is not in himself. So our discussion today is more like, a, well, how does the Bible talk about this stuff? You know, in a way, we're just sort of exalting a different idea of how do we know and understand the world around us. And the first thing I think the Bible says about knowing is something about God. And that is that God is omniscient. God knows all. And we could look at a variety of texts for this. Psalm 139 is kind of famous. And one of the things I would notice about Psalm 139 is how personal it is. So often these days when we talk about knowledge, we're talking about, you know, some set of scientific facts or understanding of some school of thought, some academic thing. Uh, but here, the psalmist, David, is talking about God knowing everything, and he's taking it very personally. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. That is completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I descend into the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me as yet when there was none of them. <clears throat> How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And he goes on from there. Um, <clears throat> and here the point is there's no place that is outside of God's realm, outside of his knowledge. And there's his knowledge of his personal knowledge of uh, each one of us is complete. <clears throat> I think you would conclude from this psalm that it's that God knows me better than I know myself. Um, he's more familiar with everything about me. Uh, and of course, this concept extends beyond just the knowledge of persons. Uh, God is proclaimed in scripture to know everything, everything that is, everything that could be, everything that might have been, uh, all, all things and all contingencies. Uh, Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So the first thing I think we would say if we're talking about knowing from a biblical perspective is there is a God who is all knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's no possibility that he's not aware of. And so he is uh, omniscient. <clears throat> and uh, in fact, since we believe in a trinity, we believe that the three persons of God are omniscient, each one and together. Um, so uh, that's the first thing. And I think it's a useful thing to stop and think about the fact that there is a being that knows everything. And one of the reasons he knows everything is that because he made everything. And you could see that in the text of that psalm. How, how is he so familiar with the, the psalmist? Well, because he's the one who made him. Knit him together, it says, in his mother's womb. There's a there's an intimate knowledge in that. So God is all-knowing in part because he is the creator of everything except himself. Everything that's not God is something God made. And so who organized subatomic chemistry? God did. And so he's intimately familiar with the things we have not yet discovered. Uh, I sometimes think about this when I go diving. You know, when you go diving, there's all this amazing variety of life and things to see. And at least the way I do it, I'm never diving much past about 100 feet deep. And I think, how much ocean is beyond that depth? I mean, I don't know what percentage we're talking about if we're talking about the ocean above 100 feet. 
but it's a tiny, tiny fraction. And uh, the scripture describes God as knowing everything about all of that. <clears throat> he has this conversation with Job where Job is sort of complaining to God and God says, uh, well, tell me about this, the sea monsters, Job. Were you there when I made them? I, I think, Job, you don't really realize who you're dealing with. Uh, and so we think about the knowledge of God, the vastness of it. We're thinking about the, not the vastness of the universe. And uh, both the visible universe and the spiritual universe, everything. Uh, and so for me to start when I'm talking about knowing with the recognition that there is one who knows it all. Someone exists who knows everything. Now, that's none of us. And no one we've ever, no human being we've ever met. But God knows everything. So what does the Bible then say about humanity? Well, I mentioned Job, so let's look at Job. This is Job 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I think, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny, but it ends up sort of being funny to me. Yeah. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Ever think about God being sarcastic? Well, here it is. <clears throat> Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were the bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? There's the word swaddling, right? <laughs> and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It's changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. So God is saying, Job, you don't know. That's my summary of that whole speech. Job, you don't know. And I think we have to notice and acknowledge that our perspective as human beings is, in fact, limited. And now we work on this together. Uh, and so we know 
and we have come to know and we have explored the world around us and we get to know each other and we have the conversation and I can learn something from you and you can learn something from me. And so our knowledge can grow and uh, we admire somebody who's very knowledgeable, but even the most knowledgeable human being, I don't know who that is, even the most knowledgeable human being, God could have this conversation with. Uh, so we have a, a limited perspective. But what we want to notice is that doesn't mean we don't know anything. <laughs> and that doesn't mean we can't know the most important things. In fact, maybe the most important observation we would make in this text from Job is that Job, a human being, is being spoken to by the one who knows everything. And that, it turns out, is kind of the most important thing we come to here. And that is a question of what, what God has done. And we're using the term the gospel here, item number three on your list, about the gospel, because we want to notice when the Bible talks about what God has done on our behalf, that's the gospel, the good news. And, of course, the main aspect of that is the good news about Jesus Christ. But here, what we're talking about, what has God done? And we can observe it right in that text in Job. We can see God has spoken. So now some people imagine God, the creator, whoever that being might be, sort of winding up the universe and letting it run and then standing back from it, just seeing what's going to happen with his big creation. That's not a biblical understanding of God. Biblical understanding of God is God reveals himself in nature. And God addresses himself to his creation. So God is involved. In fact, the scripture says about Christ that he uh, sustains the things he's made day by day. So you get the idea that if Jesus took a day off, everything would just collapse. He's keeping it going. Uh, so, but here, what's important is there's an omniscient being, and then there's these persons he's made, us, human beings, and our perspective is limited, but his perspective is not. And he speaks to us in various ways. Uh, and so God has spoken. The scripture says, first of all, that God speaks in the creation itself. And this, I think, makes good sense to us. If I make something, you can see me in the things I've made. Uh, so you can get an idea of the artist by looking at the painting. Uh, in fact, we sometimes call art a version of self-expression. And so uh, 
God, the scripture says, God can be seen in the things he's made. In fact, why don't we just look at this text in Romans 1. Kind of a famous text. Because the way this text functions in Romans is, because God can be seen in the things he's created, nobody has a good excuse for disregarding God. Because he is there to be seen. And he's made himself visible through the things he's made. So, uh, let me just read this to you. Um, Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So we can tell there is a God and we can tell that he's a God. Those things we can see in the nature. I, I mean, you've had this experience. You go out and you just look up at the sky at night. And you think, wow, I can see a long ways away here. That any star I can see is a long ways away. And I can't see them all. <laughs> I think there's stars out there whose light hasn't yet arrived on Earth. I'm guessing that's pure speculations, but could be. Because light is too slow to have gotten here by then, by now. <clears throat> but I can see the vast creation. And this creation, the scripture says, rests in the palm of God's hand. So the God I know is bigger than the universe I know. And immeasurably so. And even using the word like bigger is a bit of a misnomer because this isn't about physical dimensions, really. So God is the fact that there is a God and that he is God, as in powerful, as in almighty powerful, is visible in the material universe. If there's a creator of all this, and the creator of all this has more power than the power of all this. How much energy is in all those stars? You know, I, I keep going back to the ocean because I think the ocean illustrates a lot of this very well. If you get in, we recently had the reversal, right, with the big waves. Big waves that knock down strong things we've made without a second thought. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes I've been in those waves. There's no resisting them. And how much of the universe's power is in a big wave? 
How much of the ocean's power is in one big wave? The tiniest fraction. And we look and we see all the energy of the universe and we can't see it all. And we know it's vast beyond our comprehension. And the God who created is, is vast beyond that. Our perspective is limited. God's perspective is not. And God has spoken. And one of the ways he speaks to us is in the things he's made. The universe we inhabit. Even our own bodies, that's what, uh, yeah, what David is talking about in the psalm. <clears throat> uh, the second way God has spoken is in the person of his son. You could see this in uh, John chapter 1 where John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. God's word is personified in the person of his son. And then the person of his son in verse 14 of John chapter 1 is made flesh and we beheld his glory. The, like the glory of God, the only begotten son. And then in verse 18 of John chapter 1, we read, No one's ever seen God, but God the son his only begotten, has made him known. So God the Father is invisible. God the Son bears the image of God the Father so that he becomes visible to us. And how did he do that? By being made one of us. So in the person of Jesus Christ, God speaks. In... Uh, Later on in the book of John, he says to the apostles, if you've seen me, you've seen him. You've seen the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God speaks. So the one who knows everything is talking to us. Oh. This might be a way to know things. So uh, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here, God the Son, in the form of the man Jesus, God the Son made man, is the perfect representation of God. And here he is called the speech of God. God has spoken to us in his son. So Jesus isn't just a prophet. God's spoken to us through the prophets and in his son. So Jesus doesn't just speak for God. Jesus is the speech of God. So when we know Christ, we know God. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we talk about the Bible's idea of truth and knowing, we have to start with the fact that all truth and all knowing is grounded in the very persons of God. And for us, revealed especially in the man, Jesus, who is the Son of God, eternal, made flesh, one of us. And so, accessible to us. We can know him like we know each other. It's personal and deep. Uh, There's nothing you would need to know about God or that could be known about God that you can't know by knowing Jesus. Hmm. Okay. Then the third aspect of revelation here is in the scripture. So in what we now refer to as the Bible in Second Timothy, Second Timothy three. I'm going to start with verse 14. But as for you, so Paul is addressing Timothy, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing with whom or from whom you have learned it. What an important expression. Knowing from whom you have learned it. And we could argue all day long about our perspective on the things we see. But one important aspect of knowing is being told. And that is very important. One very important aspect of knowing is being told. I know much more than I have personally observed. Because people have told me. And sometimes they're telling me things they don't know because they've personally observed them or experienced them themselves, but because they've been told. And one of our problems in the modern world is we discount the value of being told as a way of actually knowing. And yet there's not a human being in the whole wide world that doesn't function more based on what they've been told than what they've personally experienced. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that personal experience is of no value. That's, that'd be ridiculous. Of course it is. I know certain things because I've experienced them myself. And some things I know because I've experienced them myself better than I could know them by being told. Uh, okay, that's all fine. No problem. But one very important element in everyone's knowledge of anything is what have you been told? And what then do you believe having been told? Well, we'll come back to that. But in the scriptures, we read this. Uh, sorry, I interrupted myself. <clears throat> As for you, continue in what you have learned and what and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, 
the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. So this uh, knowledge we're gaining is from the written word of God. That word we read about in Hebrews, you know, God has spoken to us through the prophets in various ways at various times. Still, that speech is still here for us to look at, to read, to understand, and to be knowing. Now, I think we'd want to be careful to say that all there is to know is not revealed in the Bible. There are things we have come to know that are not the subject of the Bible. So there's no uh, chemistry textbook in the scriptures. But the Bible does tell us something very important about chemistry or physics or biology or uh, linguistics or name your area. And that is the rational universe that we are discovering in all those other ways we look at the world around us. That rational universe is grounded in the rational creation of the rational God. And so his uh, his uh, logical nature is expressed in the nature of the things he's made. So he experienced what we read about in the first chapter of Romans. You can just look at the things that have been made. And of course, Einstein was looking at them in a way most in a, with greater care than the way most of us use. Right. So he learned how he could describe these things in mathematical language. Oh, my goodness. How is that? Ah, if the universe isn't a rational place, that's not possible. But in any case, I think we know the universe is a rational place because we ourselves are rational. And we use reason to develop from this thing I know to this thing I know, which I didn't observe directly, but it must be the case if this is. So uh, anyway, these three elements about what God has done, God has spoken. He's spoken in creation, he's spoken in the person of Christ, and he's spoken through his various prophets in various times and various ways, which now we have in the scriptures. So this is the first thing the Bible says about our knowing, well, about God's revelation. The second thing it got that the Bible says about it is this concept we call illumination. And this is God's supernatural assistance in our understanding of what he's said. So if you look at John 16, by the way, I've only like selected a few 
texts that I think are pretty good at saying what these thi- what I'm saying here, but there are others elsewhere. I'm not giving you a comprehensive list. The verse, John 16, uh, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, now, what is the what is the name Jesus is giving to the Holy Spirit in this case? The spirit of truth. <laughs> okay. Uh, spirit of truth. When the spirit of truth comes, Jesus said, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we have the three persons of the Trinity involved in our understanding of the truth. The spirit is active in the heart of the believer in his understanding of the truth. God doesn't just leave it to you to get it. He helps you. And uh, in 1 John, he repeats this idea where he says, you know, you don't really need a teacher. You have the Holy Spirit teaching you. Personally, I don't think John meant to say, therefore, get rid of all teachers, because I'm standing here teaching you. But he says that the Spirit teaches you. James said something very similar uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, this is especially true, of course, about the things of God. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, uh, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have, not, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words taught, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. A natural person does not accept the things of the spiritual God, for they are foolish to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here we have this ministry that God has in us to understand what God says. Um, yeah, in, uh, there's more later on in 1 Corinthians. I don't want to read all these to you, though. They're all listed in the handout here. So We have God speaking. We have God working in us to understand what he said. And then we have one more thing, which is faith. 
Here's something I've come to believe, and I've come to believe this not entirely from a theological or biblical perspective. In other words, I've seen this in operation, and I've learned this from people who weren't studying the idea of knowing from a biblical perspective. And one thing that has been observed that I think is true is all knowing, all of the human activity of knowing anything about anything begins in some kind of faith. So, for example, let's imagine I'm a scientist. How is science an act of faith? I'm going to study how this molecule works. Well, the first act of faith is I believe I can design an instrument that will reveal whether my hypothesis is true. Wait, I have a hypothesis. Something I believe might be true. I believe might be true. And I believe I can organize a material world ex experiment that will test my idea. In order to even get to that point, I have to believe that such a method is actually going to put me in touch with the material universe. I have to believe the material universe is accessible to be known. I have to believe that. And I have to believe I'm exercising some faith that my scientific experimentation will prove fruitful. Or why would I waste any resources on this whole thing? And I believe I have certain beliefs that make me do science in the first place. And by the way, why did I select this question as the one I wanted to explore? Well, that also was some exercise of faith, of I trust in the possibility of finding this out, and I trust in the usefulness of knowing it. And so what I'm trying to argue for here is simple. I believe all of our exercise of going out into the world and trying to figure stuff out, all of our knowing, the enterprise of knowing, is rooted in some belief that can't be known empirically. That is, this belief I form without being able to show it. Anyway, so here in scripture though, if especially when we're talking about knowing the God who knows everything, then faith is uh, critical in that. If we look at Matthew chapter 16. By the way, uh, Augustine was sort of famous for this uh, aphorism, which has been repeated 
by others. Uh, and I think he probably kind of stole the idea from Isaiah. <laughs> Though the way Isaiah puts it is kind of different from the way he meant it. He says, without faith, there's no understanding. And that's a shortcut way of saying what I'm saying. So I just want you to know, I didn't invent this, this concept that there's faith involved in all of our knowing enterprises. But there's uh, this, you know, is ancient. Um, Matthew 16, 16. I guess I have to start with 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So this conversation comes up and Jesus says, so what are people saying about me? And the, the disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. That's an odd one. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't even figure this out yourself. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here again, we have this concept of illumination. But we also have this put together with the idea of faith. Who do you say that I am? In John chapter 6, Peter, you know, he didn't always have that figured out. In fact, we might be looking at a description of the moment in which he figured it out. I don't know. But who is this? Who is this? has been an important question. Uh, you know, when Jesus calmed the storm and all the disciples fell down in fear after the storm had been calmed, now they're really afraid. And they all are saying to themselves, who is this that even the wind and the sea, who is this? Now Peter's saying, I'll tell you who you are. This is who we say you are. The son of the living God. Wow the Christ, Messiah. Uh, in chapter 6 of John, verse 68. Oh, sorry, I got to start earlier again because I've got to catch the conversation. Uh, Jesus was saying some stuff and people had a hard time with it. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? Now's your chance. <laughs> you want to go as way, away as well? And again, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
and we have believed and have come to know. That's interesting that that comes in that order. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One, the Messiah of God. Uh, so what we have is the word received in faith. And in the middle, we have the ministry of the spirit to bring about recognition and understanding. So in Hebrews chapter four, verse two, and this is in the context where the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about the nation of Israel when they got right up to the doorstep of the promised land and then they chickened out. Remember this story? Right after Sinai, they were ready to just march right in there and they got right up to the border and they sent some guys over to sort of check things out. And those guys came back and 10 out of 12 of them said, no way, we can't do it. Two of them said, well, right, we can't do it, but God certainly can. And the nation went with the 10 instead of the two. And so God, as a consequence, he judged the nation. And they, that's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years till all those people had died. So not a single one of those people got to go into the promised land. They turned it down. And Hebrews is using that as an illustration for us. To say, don't be like those people. When God makes you a promise, you need to believe it and act on it. So he says, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. So one of the ways we come to know the truth is to exercise faith. Well, I guess I, would, I don't want to say one of the ways. I think an essential element in our comprehension and true understanding of what is true comes in the exercise of our faith. And the only question is, what do you trust in? And this is a tricky proposition, isn't it? Especially when I'm talking about one of the ways we know things is to be told. Well, you might tell me something. And then I got to decide whether to believe it. I'm telling you all this, and it's going to be up to you whether you believe it or not. And you don't know it if you don't believe it. And of course, I assume because we're all in attendance at this meeting, we thought when we came here this morning that I might say something worth believing. And that I might impart to you some knowledge that somehow has been imparted to me. Uh, and this is the exercise we're engaged in. Now, this exercise is this this whole arena is imperfect because I'm an imperfect judge of what I ought to believe. So I'm I'm not 
going to just connect directly as though I've got some holy pipe. I know the words of the text of Scripture are true because they are the word of God. And so God's not capable of deception. So the word of God is true. So my personal starting point is whatever I find in here, I am going to believe. Now, has that solved my problem? Well, it's solved one element of it, but it, I still have to figure out what it says. I still have to, and I have to figure it out kind of in its context and make sure I'm not, you know, bringing too much of my own mess on top of it. To, that's a challenging proposition where it's not, a, it's not just a simple matter. Now, some things it says are plain and obvious and, you know, not hard to figure. Thou shalt not lie. Okay, well, I, I think I have a good handle on what that means. Other things it says are more difficult, and many things it says are really beyond my capability of understanding. And so I can learn to describe them and even while I'm describing them, knowing that my description isn't quite adequate. But this is our, this is the enterprise of knowing. And I'm, what I'm trying to communicate today is as, as believers in God's word, God's word says some things about how we go about knowing. And what God's word says about how we go about knowing is really radically different from this lie we talked about last time, where your guess is as good as mine. There's no reason to trust my perspective over yours or yours over mine. Well, there might be good reasons. And if we are actually capable of understanding the world around us, because there's a God who made the world, and that God isn't leaving us to handle this on our own. Oh, you know, in the early modern age, or the late medieval age, whatever whatever we would call it, that period where we might describe something they call the Enlightenment, the reason in the Western world we decided to pursue the scientific enterprise was because we believed that the the material world was created by a rational God. And therefore, we believed it to be rationally accessible to our exploration. And so we thought, well, let's explore then. And so even the foundations of science have this root in the concept of faith in a self-revealing God. So when we're confronting the world and it's, you know, ways of saying we're, we're just cut loose from reality. So define this word however you care to define it, and I'll define it my way. I don't know how we keep having a conversation after that, but people keep talking anyway. Uh, what we want to know is, no, we have 
solid footing in a biblical understanding of how people come to know things.